is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Welcome to episode 27, Mary Church Terrell, part one. I just want to give a few content warnings before we get into this episode. This episode will include references to racial violence, police violence and gun violence, as well as some references to sexual violence and suicide. If you need a space where that's not being discussed, then you might need to give this episode a miss. I will also try to give timestamps in the show notes so that you can skip those particular sections. And another quick note that as with previous episodes in this series, we are going to use terminology that we would not use today. This is partly because that refers to names of places and organisations and it feels inaccurate to change them. But also Mary Church Terrell was very vocal about preferring the term coloured woman. Her use of that term is very political and references the inherent sexual violence of slavery. So she uses it to acknowledge the fact that both of her grandmothers were raped by their enslavers and that is how her parents came into being and because of that they were what we would call today biracial. So she is specifically referencing her white grandfathers who were enslavers. Okay, so um, with those notes, let's take a quick trip around the world in Mary Church Terrell's lifetime. In January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing enslaved people in Confederate states. On August 16th, 1865, the Dominican Republic regains independence after four years of fighting against Spanish annexation. On January 8th, 1867, African-American men are granted the right to vote in Washington, D.C. On May 15, 1869, the National Women's Suffrage Association is formed in New York by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. In December of 1869, the United States' first national industrial union, the Knights of Labor, is formed in Philadelphia. On February 27, 1872, Charlotte Ray, the first African-American woman lawyer in the United States, graduates from Howard University. On October 6, 1876, the American Library Association is founded in Philadelphia. In 1879, Blanche Bruce becomes the first African-American and only formerly enslaved person to preside over the U.S. Senate. On March 4th of 1881, James A. Garfield is sworn in as the 20th President of the United States. On March 25th, 1888, an International Congress for Women's Rights is organized by Susan B. Anthony in Washington, D.C., and this leads to the formation of the International Council of Women. On June 27th of 1890, Canadian-born boxer George Dixon defeats the British bantamweight champion in London, giving him claim to be the first black world champion in any sport. On September the 8th, 1892, the Bellamy version of the Pledge of Allegiance is first recited in the United States. All right, we're going to wrap up here and put a a big ellipses in our timeline um, and share the second half in our part two episode. Yes, Mary Church Terrell has such a fascinating life. We couldn't possibly fit this into one episode. 
we thought about doing that at one point, but it's not possible. Honestly, this could have been another four-parter. Um, but there are so many resources that we can point you to that yeah. we were selective and we'll be pointing you to lots of resources. <laughs> so because of that kind of late stage decision, we're doing this in a slightly different format from usual. So I will be taking you through the first part of Mary Churchill's biography in our first episode, and then Courtney will give us some more information about her later life in the second episode. So I want to open this episode the same way that Churchill opens her autobiography. This is the story of a coloured woman living in a white world. It cannot possibly be like a story written by a white woman. A white woman has only one handicap to overcome, that of sex. I have two, both sex and race. I belong to the only group in this country which has two such huge obstacles to surmount. Coloured men have only one, that of race. White women of Great Britain showed what a serious handicap they considered their sex by the desperate methods they used to obtain the suffrage. The white women of the United States proved they entertained the same view by working continuously and hard for more than 70 years to secure the rights which citizenship usually confers upon men. I wonder what they could have done if they had been obliged to overcome two handicaps instead of one. I have recorded what I have been able to accomplish in spite of obstacles which I have had to surmount. I have done this not because I want to tell the world how smart I am, but because both a sense of justice and a regard for truth prompts me to show what a coloured woman can achieve in spite of the difficulties by which race prejudice blocks her path. If she fits herself to do a certain thing, works with all her might and main to do it, and is given a chance. So I thought that was a really powerful kind of summary of how she thought about this. She's plainly stating and acknowledging that her existence on multiple axes of oppression has impacted her experience of the world. Obviously, she only ra- mentions race and gender. Now we might include a few more. And I don't know if you read H.G. Wells' preface to her autobiography, which I should mention is called A Coloured Woman in a White World. Because he essentially says that if Church Terrell had been a white working English woman, she would have had the same life. And um, hmm. no. No. Would be my response to that as a bit of a it's a bit of a sideline but it just reminds me of so many like leftist men that I know that are like class is the most important thing that you have to surmount and not acknowledging the great impact of race especially and also gender and mm-hmm. ability and sexuality yeah I think it's like she's kind of articulating before we have the term intersectionality she's really kind of articulating a lived experience of that yeah and I kind of I have this in the notes at the one point but I think that's but yeah, she's writing this maybe like 50 years before Kimberly Crenshaw uses the term intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a strength of the term because it's kind of the best theory puts a word to something that's just common sense but hasn't been formally articulated. Yeah, definitely. Most of the research for this episode is based both on Church Charles' autobiography and on the work of Alison Parker. And because that's been so hugely helpful, I wanted to give that kind of a shout out at the top of the episode. So... Mary, or Molly as she was known to her family and friends, was born 23rd of September 1863 into slavery in Memphis during the Civil War, but she was not raised enslaved. So if you are listening carefully to the Around the World section, you might have noticed that this is almost a year after the Emancipation Proclamation, which went into effect on January 1st, 1863. Now that's because the Union took over Tennessee in 1862, and the proclamation applied only to states in rebellion, so only to Confederate states. So her parents didn't actually gain their freedom until after the war. So there's no clear evidence either that they were enslaved or that they were free until after the war, but it's quite likely that they were still enslaved until afterwards. She mentions briefly that these are just some interesting things that I picked out. She talks about her early years. 
So she does mention briefly that her mother attempted suicide while pregnant, and thankfully she didn't complete suicide, otherwise we wouldn't have Mary Church Terrell. And the really interesting thing about this is that her mother's white half-sister tells Mary a lot about her birth and says it was such a happy time. But Mary knows that her mother attempted suicide, so she's rightly sceptical of this aunt. Wow, that's fascinating. It's just a really harsh illustration of how, yeah, the narratives that are passed down through families aren't necessarily true. Mm -hmm. She was also bald for just over the first year of her life, so she (laughs) developed hair a lot later than a lot of babies do. She says, my little head looked for all the world like a billiard ball. (laughs) I've often wondered why my mother, who usually had such excellent taste about everything, wanted to hand down to posterity such a bald-headed baby as I was. <laughs> I mean, I don't think her mother had a choice about her being bald, but... Right. <laughs> oh, gosh. And one final fact about her birth and very early life. Her great-grandmother Lucy told a story about being a Malay princess who was enslaved because of a revolution in her native San Domingue, which is modern-day Hispaniola. Um... I didn't look too much into the reliability of that story, but we know that she spoke French and was seen as, quote, a fancy girl. That's the grandmother, that is, the great-grandmother. And to quote Alison Parker, typically that meant she was purchased to be sexually available to her white enslaver and for her reproductive capacity against her free agency to choose. So both her grandfather and her great-grandfather were enslavers who raped the women that they enslaved. And she talks about her dad and her grandma both having quite pale skin. Again, a reference back to her political use of the term coloured. Molly talks about mentioning to her father Robert one day that he looked a lot like a white man, Captain Church, who they went and visited on Sunday mornings. And he was apparently very kind to her. Her father explains to her that this is because Captain Church is her, his father, her grandfather. The captain was an enslaver who sympathised with the Union and suffered financially because of it. Of course, this doesn't undo the harm of slavery. In her autobiography, Mary writes that, quote, This daughter of a slave father is glad thus publicly to express her gratitude to him. But the anguish of one slave mother from whom her baby was snatched away outweighs all the kindness and goodness which were occasionally shown a fortunate favoured slave. Her parents' relationships with their white fathers gave them access to training and skills that benefited them during Reconstruction. So Molly's father taught himself to read and write his name. She says she never saw him write anything more than his name, but he could write his own name. So he was married and had one daughter before marrying Molly's mother, Louisa. But he had been separated from his first wife by the Civil War, and apparently that constituted divorce at that time. They were on separate sides of a river and therefore in separate territory. Her parents married in December 1862, and both of their fathers attended the wedding, which shows that they kind of consented or approved of the wedding there is implication that if his father had known that he'd been married to this other woman he wouldn't have approved of his marrying molly's mother louisa's half-sister said the couple's friends and acquaintances had long expected them to get married at some point that's such a weird commentary it is weird isn't it apparently they knew they were friends for a long time and everyone it's the classic kind of will they won't they they're going to eventually but That it seems odd that he married this other woman, and I couldn't find much information about that because I found the information about the other wife through Parker. Um, Molly doesn't mention it at all in her book, hmm. yeah. but yeah, apparently she had an older sister from that marriage. Oh wow! Molly's mother, Louisa Ayres Church, was extremely artistic, and she opened a shop where she sold hair extensions and wigs to wealthy white women. 
Her shop was in the most elite section of downtown Memphis. She provided the family with financial stability through her store and her hairdressing, which she was really well known for, but apparently she had no concept of saving. Molly describes her mother as, quote, a ray of sunshine all the time. I cannot recall that I ever saw her depressed but once, although she had lost all her worldly possessions and was in poor health. And there's a really touching section where she talks about going to her mum whenever she had troubles and Louisa making her feel better. Like her mum is always happy-go-lucky and never seems to be upset, even though she has no idea of saving and lost all her money at one point. Yeah, yeah, that's going to come up again in part two, but it seems like um, she really kind of always thinks of her mother as this generous soul and doesn't kind of hold that against her. Yeah, that's the real impression I got that her mother, the image that I get of her mother from reading her autobiography is that she's very selfless. Mm -hmm. Her father, on the other hand, (laughs) will come up more later. But the, the early sections of the information I have about him do paint him in a good light, to be honest. So her father is Robert Church. In 1866, he tried to set up a saloon and billiard hall but was denied his billiard license in April 1865 on the basis of race. Um, But he opened up the shop anyway. He wasn't going to let that lack of a license stop him Mm. and was arrested for operating without a license. So he sued to appeal against this based on the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and won in court, which made him a target for white violence. So only days later, on May 1st, 1866, something called the Memphis Massacre took place. To quote one article I read for this episode, the riot was, quote, the bloodiest reaction to black freedom and the quest for racial equality during Reconstruction. So it was a really scary and dangerous time to be black in Memphis. Mm-hmm. So during this riot, it's white, mostly Irish police officers attacked free black people and targeted their property and destroyed businesses. Despite knowing the danger, knowing that he already had a target on his head because of him suing, Robert Church went to his saloon to protect the business, uh, and he was shot in the back of the head. He survived, possibly by playing dead, so apparently he just lay down after he got shot the first time, and that's the only reason they didn't shoot him anymore. They thought they'd already killed him. Wow. Yeah, and also I'm not sure medically how he was saved, because apparently he suffered migraines and excruciating pain for the rest of his life. And was also left with a hole in the back of his head, quote, into which one could easily insert the tip of the little finger. That's so terrifying. It's, I mean, it's horrifying with modern medicine, but think about 1866 medicine. Yeah. Is. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, probably a key part of this is 1866 firearms are not as powerful. Yeah. And this shooting apparently changed his personality and he developed a very bad temper, which we will see in the rest of this episode. Molly described this as the most violent temper of any human being with whom I have come into contact. Gosh. Just, I mean, yeah, we'll see later that he's not the most pleasant guy at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously you can't know how much of it was down to this and how much was just his character. But people who knew him before and after do seem to think this was a big reason for that. Yeah. Robert took another risk in testifying to a congressional committee that was looking into the massacre, including that he openly identified the police officer who had shot him. So I mentioned before that this was mostly white police officers who were attacking three black people. And the guy who shot him was a police officer called Dave Roach, which 
I don't want to be flippant, but the name Roach seems to fit. Mm. So that's her parents' background, and these are the people that are bringing Molly up and into the world, which will become, we'll see their impact. Mm -hmm. So Molly's parents separated when she was young, and custody of Molly and her brother, Robert, was given to Louisa, even though her brother, Robert Jr., had been living with Robert Sr. So he's moved from his father, Robert's house, to his mother's. For most of her childhood, Molly lived in the Memphis suburbs, where she played with her German neighbours. This led to her sometimes using the German names for things rather than the English, which really confused her mother. Hmm. In her autobiography, she describes the first time she encountered what she calls the race problem. So she and her father were going north by train, and because there was no Jim Crow law in Tennessee saying they had to use the coach set apart for black people... They went to the best coach and her father left her there to, quote, go into what's called the smoker. Hmm. So I guess that's just a smoking carriage. Yeah. It's worth mentioning here that her father was pretty rich. Um, He's the first black millionaire. I don't know if that comes up later. I It does, but I, do, I didn't put it in my notes because I didn't know if it came up earlier. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was kind of here. by a sidelight. But yeah, her father did very well in real estate and investing and was the first black millionaire. So they are, they very much belong in the best coach. They have paid Mm -hmm. for those tickets and they belong there. So her dad gets her a seat in the best coach and leaves her to go into the smoker. And when the conductor comes along, he apparently glares at Molly and asks me who I was and what I was doing in that car. I replied as well as a frightened little girl, five years old, could be expected to answer under the circumstances. But I did not placate the irate conductor who decided then and there to put me in the coach, quote, where I belonged. Comes across a little five-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. I was going to say it's a product of the time. We're still doing it now. Yeah. It's like, how how do you be that insecure that, like, not only do you police adults, but you're like, this five-year-old kid is doing irreparable harm by sitting in this carriage. Yeah. Luckily, one of her dad's white friends went and found her dad to tell him what was going on. So Robert came back and, by all accounts, had a very excitable argument with the conductor they were able to stay in that carriage Mm. most likely because they were wealthy um and this is the really heartbreaking bit after this story is she's confused about why the conductor had been angry and she said she's done everything that her mother has told her to do by being neat and clean and behaving like a little lady and it's those respectability politics that we still hear today of yeah you did everything you could do and still wasn't enough so we kind of figure out what happened with robert jr around this time but for molly we definitely know that she was sent north to a model school connected to antioch college in ohio for school when she was about six and louisa had friends whose children went to the school and thought it would give her a better education than was available for black children in memphis she boarded with the hunster family who kept a sweet shop in their house Mm. And apparently Robert Sr. sent her $5 a month for candy. That's like a little fortune back then, especially for a kid. I'm going to just really quickly look up how much that is. Uh, That's a lot, man. (laughs) I mean, that's... Even now, it's a decent amount. So it's 1869 if she's six. Mm -hmm. Which is equivalent to $87 in 2019 money. 
she's, <laughs> she's just like rolling in candy she can probably she's like like amy march with the pickled limes but just like handing out candy to whoever has her favor <laughs> or actually in in commodity terms that is 96 dollars and 80 cents wow um that's a lot of candy money 25 dollars a week to spend on candy <laughs> i mean fair play to her that sounds that's any kid's dream right yeah i mean if your dad's a millionaire that doesn't seem like even a lot he's probably like this is such a small amount i'm sending <laughs> yeah just a token amount for the candy and i'm sure that was part of it was kind of like paying the hunsters for board for allowing her to stay there right yeah um maybe they didn't accept normal like boarding rent or something yeah that you pay them in candy um, but it seems like it was really fun for her in the summer they kept an ice cream parlor and molly really enjoyed helping out there um so sometimes she would serve customers but mostly she just ate plenty of ice cream mm. And then apparently never wanted to eat ice cream later in life. Fair. And I didn't realize how much eating ice cream seems to have played a part in like turn of the century socializing because she says it's really put her in a difficult position later in life when she's socially socializing and has to explain that she doesn't like ice cream. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that, you know, it's this kind of feat that, you know, it's this mm. it's this real sort of status signifier that you can afford. Um, to like keep it iced. Yeah. So while she's there, she had German lessons from a female student at the college. And one of the things that really shows up throughout her autobiography is her love of learning. So she talks about excelling in class and her aptitude for reading and memorizing poetry. And it seems to have really similar roots to what we talked about with Fanny Jackson Coffin, her similar love. Um, and what she says about this, she says that on realizing her ancestors were enslaved, she quote, resolved that so far as this descendant of slaves was concerned, she would show those white girls and boys whose forefathers had always been free that she was their equal in every respect. At that time, I was the only coloured girl in my class, and I felt I must hold high the banner of my race. So it's exactly the same kind of motivation of that we saw with Fanny Jackson Coffin. Like, she's not just doing this for herself, she's doing it for her entire race. But she's also doing it for herself. Mm -hmm. Genuinely seems to, it's not... There is a sense of duty there, but she also genuinely seems to love learning. Yeah, definitely. I think that carries through in part two as well. Um, she mentions a few experiences of what we'd now call racism at school. So in one, um, from the teachers and people running the school, not from children. It should be m noted. Hmm. Um, in one instance, she was cast in a play as an extremely stereotypical black servant. And she just refused to take part in the play because of this. Oh, good for props her. to her that must have been so difficult mm -hmm. as as a young kid and as a like the only woman or girl of color in a school mostly white kids that's so difficult yeah in another example she talks about she goes into i think it's a cloakroom and these girls are have this game where they're looking in the mirror and they're saying everything that they like about themselves they're saying oh i've got such pretty eyes and i've got really nice lips so she just goes in and plays along with them and says that she's got a really pretty face. And these girls apparently decided to mock her because of that and reply by saying, you've got a pretty black face. Mm. Pointing her, the girl in question that's talking points her finger at Molly divisively. I get the sense that she does understand why they're doing this, but it's a real like slap in the face that, yeah. oh, I can't just join in this weird game that you've got and say, yes, I'm pretty too. Mm -hmm. But she recovers herself. She's a bit shocked at first, but recovers herself really well and replies by saying, quote, 
I don't want my face to be white like yours and look like milk. I want it nice and dark just like it is. Burn. (laughs) I have such admiration for this girl. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure how old she is at this point, but she's she's definitely in like the equivalent of middle school, I think. And it seems like she really developed a political consciousness while she's in the place that she's in near Antioch College is called Yellow Springs. Hmm. So she writes about her admiration for Ulysses S. Grant, a little song that she sings about Ulysses S. Grant and his opponent, which she regrets in the future when she learns more. And also the town is named for a waterfall that's nearby. And she takes to naming that the John Brown Springs after the abolitionist. Wow. So Molly stayed in Yellow Springs for four years before moving to Oberlin, Ohio, which should ring a bell um, to finish her schooling. She entered eighth grade at Oberlin High School, where, as well as excelling academically, she joined the choir of the First Congressional Church of Oberlin and joined the musical union. She got very sick in her second year of high school and her friends all feared that she had tuberculosis. But thankfully, she recovered and she was treated by a doctor who traveled from Cleveland to treat her, which is no mean feat. Like, it's quite a distance. Mm -hmm. She spent the following summer visiting her mother, who'd moved to New York and spent most of her days with her brother, Robert Jr., at Coney Island or the beach. And the following year, she entered the senior class of the preparatory department of Oberlin College, which I get the impression is like a feeder school. Mm-hmm. So it's still high school, but the expectation is you're going to go to the college that's attached. So another similarity to Fanny Jackson Coppin, she did the full four-year gentleman's degree and earned a bachelor's degree. And she had been set on this even while she was still at school. She talks about having disagreements with her friends because they say, why would you do that? Why don't you just take the two-year literary course that most women do, um, which you get a certificate, not a degree, and... Molly was really clear she wants a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and her friends are saying it might ruin her chances of getting a husband. Quote, since men were notoriously shy of women who knew too much. <sighs> and I thought on the subject of Oberlin, because we have covered a few writers of colour, Martin Delaney and Fanny Jessen Coppin in particular, who went to Oberlin. Um, I thought Alison Parker made a really interesting point in that Oberlin did admit people of colour, but it was still a predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. And that seems to have been a very specific decision of her parents to admit her or to encourage her to go to Oberlin because of that. Yeah. Until her junior year, she only had one classmate of colour and she was the only girl in a Greek class of 40 boys. She recalls Matthew Arnold, the English critic of culture and anarchy and Mm -hmm. all kinds of very interesting takes that I do not necessarily agree with fame. (laughs) Um, so Matthew Arnold visits the class and compliments her ability to the teachers and is then shocked when the teacher told him that she was black. Yeah. Matthew Arnold is trash. Just going to go on record with that. That, yeah. His poetry is all right, but... <laughs> wow, that's an incredible segue because Molly was particularly suited to poetry. Um, she was unanimously elected the class poet in her freshman year, but in her junior year, she lost out to a white boy of which she says, quote, I believe I am justified in thinking that if a white girl had been recognised by the class as I had been in my freshman year, she would probably be an elected class poet for the junior exhibition instead of a young man who had previously exhibited no talent or skill in that direction at all. Mm-hmm. I received almost every other honour that my classmates or the members of my literary society could give me. So, yeah, and she talks about how this boy's friends are really 
like pounding the pavements for him and trying to get him elected as a class poet mm. even though he's not he doesn't seem to have shown any interest in it before yeah this is an interesting kind of theme in her writing career that will come up a lot um in our part two um of just her kind of being very aware of how publishing works and how writing honors come about and how um, basically white supremacist publishing was and I guess I mean is if we're being completely mm -hmm. honest yeah and about the advantages that being wealthy and white mm -hmm. gained you and yeah. gained you in publishing yeah. yeah so she was elected to represent her literary society Eolian in debates against the other women's literary society twice and served as an editor of the Oberlin Review and at one point, she describes trying to get work acting as a kind of secretary for rich women in New York. So kind of writing their letters, opening their letters, scheduling their engagements hmm. um, during summer break. So she tried to get these jobs while she's staying with her mum over the summer. And she is repeatedly turned down explicitly on the basis of race. So one of them, she gets she does really well in the interview. And then the woman right at the end asks her, why she has such a, quote, swarthy complexion. Ugh. And Molly is very upfront and says, it is because I am a coloured woman. And then is told that her services will not be required. Yeah, she's really, um, like, she, she kind of thinks about passing as um, being ashamed of who she is. And so she really, like, if she's given the option to pass, she almost mm -hmm. never does. Um, yeah, because it's this kind of matter of pride. Yeah, she's always very willing and eager to say, "No, I am a woman of color, or a colored woman," as she would use in her parlance. Yeah. Even though she knows the consequences of saying that, like she's well aware of what will happen when she does. Yeah, yeah. So, in her freshman year at Oberlin, she is invited to visit DC by the wife of the Senator Blanche Bruce, who we mentioned in Around the World, mm. and who was friends with her father. This gave her her first taste of society, so she attended the inaugural ball for Garfield. And also, while in DC, she met Frederick Douglass for the first time. Nice. Um, so she graduated with a BA from Oberlin in 1884, and was extremely disappointed that neither of her parents were able to attend her graduation. I wasn't sure why they weren't able to attend. Yeah, and I don't know if you have this in um, part two, but she does also get a master's in eighteen eighty-eight. I somehow missed that, so that's. I think yeah. it's somewhere technically in my notes, but also she okay. doesn't mention it prominently in her autobiography. But yeah, it, yeah, it's worth noting that she has not only an MA, but no, not only a BA, but an MA. Nice. So after graduating from her bachelor's degree. She went to stay with her dad in Memphis at a new home that he'd just finished building. And here she learned that he was about to marry for a third time, though she says second, so presumably she doesn't know about the first wife. Mm -hmm. Now, Molly was already fond of her new stepmother, Anna, who was a whole seven years her senior. <laughs> and who her... So Molly's mum and Anna's mum are good friends. And Louisa, Molly's mum, has asked Anna to give molly music tuition during the summers where she's home from um, school and university so they know each other very well from there um, some of her friends and acquaintances did feel that she should resent anna but she didn't 
partly because her mum doesn't seem to have resented her at all hmm. and was good friends with both Anna and her mother. So it sounds like a really difficult position to be in because I can understand why her friends might be like, oh, you should, you know, feel resentment against this woman who's now married your dad. But yeah, she doesn't care. Her mum doesn't care. Um, and they really seem to be a close extended family. Like they talk about going for visits at Louisa's house and Molly, her parents, her stepmom and her brother and her later two half siblings all visit together mm-hmm. and have a lovely time by all accounts. Now, since her dad was married and didn't need her company, Molly decided to leave Memphis because she clearly, I mean, we've already got the impression by now that she's a very ambitious woman. She's not going to settle for just hanging around there. Mm -hmm. She couldn't do the kind of work that she wanted to do in Memphis. And also Robert was opposed to her teaching in the area because she, quote, would be taking the bread and butter out of the mouth of some girl who really needed it. So it's, it's a noble sentiment and I can see where they're getting at. Yeah, but that's kind of really just the polite way of saying, like, you're going to embarrass the family by working when you don't need mm-hmm. to, you know? Like, it's just the the really kind of silver lining way of saying that, I think. <laughs> yeah, and it's really patronizing both to Molly and to whoever this supposed other woman is. Yeah. Like, I mean, what he wanted was for her to not work at all and be a real Southern lady. Mm. So he was opposed to her, the idea of her teaching at all, let alone, you know, like you say, he cloaks it in her not teaching nearby to where he lives, but he doesn't want to her to teach at all. Yeah. But knowing that she was really in a minority and being able to earn a degree as a woman of colour, um, Molly really feels that she can put this to good use and wants to do that and wouldn't be satisfied with just a life of leisure. She received a few job offers and she ended up accepting one at Wilberforce University near Xenia, Ohio, where she taught everything from French and mineralogy in the college department to reading and writing in the preparatory department. Now, as you might expect by the breadth of those subjects, she was by no means an expert in all of them, and her students had often received more lessons in some subjects than she had. So she talks about how her students have had two years of French, and some of them are actually Haitian, so they know French very well. And she's had one year of French, but she's teaching them. Wow. So to keep up, she's working around the clock to keep ahead of them. She was also secretary of the faculty, which means keeping notes at meetings and keeping minutes and played the organ for church services and choir rehearsals. So I don't know when she slept. It's another case of someone who just does so much. Yeah. Her father was so angry at her for taking this position that he only wrote to her once in her first year. So she writes him a letter telling him what she's doing. He writes one reply and then doesn't write again. Gosh. She says, quote, I thought it was better to teach without his permission than to ask it and then accept a position after he had forbidden me to do so. Mm. I hoped that when he learned I was working in the North instead of the South, he would be reconciled to it. But my hopes were blasted. I found that really interesting, the fact that she thinks it being in the North will make him a bit more susceptible to it. Yeah. Amenable to it. Yeah. I mean, I can see it being a safety issue as well, right? Mm. Yeah. But also probably kind of further away from his social circles. Yeah. So the first year, the summer of her first year at Wilberforce, she goes to visit him in Memphis. And she, I'm trying to remember what she says from memory, but she writes him and she says, I'm going to be on this train. I will meet you at the station. Or I would be really grateful if you would meet me at the station. But I am coming home deal with it essentially Hmm. and he comes to the realization that they're both 
they do both share values of wanting to like advance the race and do what they can with what they have. And he is a bit of a rubber rouser trailblazer himself, so he can't be he realizes that they're more similar and that their similarity is the point of argument. <laughs> so he kind of forgive her. How much you really forgive her? Yeah. They put it behind them somehow to an extent and carried on. <laughs> yeah. During her second year at Wolf War, she received two invitations. One was from a wealthy white woman who was going on a trip to Europe um, and wanted her to go as a companion. And the other was an invitation to teach at a high school in Washington, D.C. Her father told her that if she took the high school job rather than going to Europe with this white woman, he would go to Europe with her in the following year. And after agonising over her decision, she headed for D.C., but she does seem to have been really worried throughout this year that he's going to go back on his word. Mm. Just tells you a little bit about who he was. Yeah. So her new job was at the Preparatory Coloured High School, which is now the M Street High School. And here she was told of a fellow teacher, a DC native who had graduated with honours from Carver the same year that she graduated from Oberlin. And everyone was really excited for this kid who'd been raised in the area. So he was also born enslaved. And then when his parents got free they brought him to dc mm. and then went off to harvard graduated with honors i think they said he was one of seven students of color to graduate with honors in that year wow and then came home now this man was in charge of the latin department and she was going to assist him she was really excited to meet him and upon seeing quote a tall dapper well-dressed young man whom i intuitively and instinctively knew to be a harvard graduate at a friend's house one sunday leapt up and rushed to meet him <laughs> And this was her future husband, Robert Alberto Heberton Terrell. Dun, dun, dun. It seems like a re really sweet story. Like, yeah. And she, she also tells stories because she's his assistant in Latin and she tells stories of like the boys would ask him a question and he would say, oh, I'm not sure I have to ask Miss Church. And then always like defers to her for the answer. That's or, like, fun. Quite often will, which is really sweet. The boys are going to be up to more um, antics in part two. <laughs> It's a nice preview. So that's her first year at um, model school. Her father kept his promise to take her to Europe. And after her first year in DC, they sailed for England. On the boat, they met Harriet Beecher Stowe's half-sister, Isabella Beecher Hooker, who gave Molly a letters of introduction to some of the most helpful and influential people in Paris. So after three months, her father begrudgingly left her alone in Paris to return to the States. She stayed in Paris for a while, but it came, became clear quite quickly the city was more expensive than she'd expected and that it was very unusual for a young woman to travel around the city alone. So, for example, if she wants to go to the theatre, she has to pay someone to escort her mm. and buy their ticket as well, rather than just going on her own. So on top of just the expense of living in a capital city, which as someone who lives in London, I can assure you, is greater than other places, she has also those expenses to think about. Mm -hmm. So she's really worried that her father will disapprove of her changing her plans. But nevertheless, she travelled on to Lausanne, Switzerland, where she stayed for a year and attended a French private school. She also tells, this is where I was um, reading and trying to figure out what to include and not include. But there's this really funny story of where she's staying in Switzerland. She's staying with this family and they drink, I think it's wine at every meal, as you might expect. Mm -hmm. um, and she's not so into drinking wine all the time. So she asks for a glass of iced water from a... It's a very like bucolic little stream 
where they can get fresh iced water. Hmm. And she asks for that with her meal. And the, I think it's the mother of this household is absolutely shocked and think that, thinks that's going to make her ill. Oh no. Because she'd never heard of anyone drinking iced water with their meal before. That's fun. But yeah, I was kind of surprised that she's going to school, but the whole kind of Europe trip is oriented around learning. Yeah. From here, she travelled to Berlin via Munich and Dresden. Um, there are a lot of scrapes she gets up to in those cities along the way. But one of them in Munich, a guide that she had employed, tried to steal her guidebook, hmm. which I found really odd. She Yeah, she's bought this guidebook in Switzerland to kind of anticipate what she's going to see and what she's going to learn. And then she's with this guide at the station and a person getting on the train kind of looks at her and says, watch your pockets or watch out for that guy. And she realizes that he's got her guidebook. And when she confronts him, he denies it for a long time. And then he's like, oh, look what I have to have found in my pockets. So yeah, I was I was just puzzled by why a guide would need to steal a guidebook. Yeah. I mean, the only things I can think of are kind of super nefarious and, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah. But he didn't seem to expect her to realize. So hmm. um, on a less amusing note in Dresden, she found too many white Brits and Americans to feel completely safe, especially white Americans she was really nervous about encountering in Europe. While in Berlin, she attended lectures at a school founded by the Empress Frederick, which is Queen Victoria's daughter. And this was the first school in Germany for the higher education of girls. But the content was more simple than the schooling she'd received in the United States. And according to her, might easily have been digested by children of 12. Wow. She's very cutting about that. Hmm. I mean, she is, like, a genius, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like, she's capable without all of her education, but she has also had a lot of education. Yeah. But I think she's also, like, this is the first, this is the only thing that girls have access to here. And she's kind of like, I thought it would be more advanced. Like, she goes to lectures Mm -hmm. and things. She also received the first of several proposals from a friend of a friend. And this was from a blind musician from Austria who heard she liked music and suspected that because she was American, she might be rich, which I guess because she's American and traveling around Europe is a fair assumption. There's also a really gross implication that because she's black, he expected her to accept this proposal from a complete stranger. She's never met him before. And he like asks to meet her specifically to propose because he thinks she will support him Uh, of course she said no i mean we already spoiled that by telling you who her husband was and it was not an austrian musician (laughs) Um, but he was the first of four white men who would propose to her while she was in europe after spending several months in berlin she traveled to liverpool to meet her mother and brother who were traveling over to meet her and it seems like the 10 days spent waiting in liverpool were really anxiety inducing for molly because she'd broken a small mirror while packing to leave Berlin and was now terrified that this was an ill omen that her mother and brother were going to be kind of overtaken by a disaster at sea. So the entire time she's waiting, she's worried that they're not going to arrive. Thankfully, they did arrive safely and with some good news. And Molly made the decision not to pay any more attention to superstitions. I will leave her there in Liverpool. Yeah, so we will be back soon with part two of Mary Trich Terrell's life. Thank you for listening. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. 
If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. George J. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.